What is up? This is Perry Noble, and you're about to listen to a message from this year's NLC conference at New Spring Church. Before, but before you do, don't forget, next year, go ahead and save the date. Registration has not began, but September 6th of next year, that would be 2012, we're going to have NLC here at New Spring Church again with Stephen Furtick, Judd Wilhite, Andy Stanley, James McDonald, Matt Chandler, Judah Smith, and myself. It's going to be an amazing day. I hope you can join us. But for now, I hope you really enjoy this talk from NLC this past year. We'll start with theology. Every single human being on the earth is unceasingly a worshiper. We, we all worship. We worship all the time. We give our time, talent, treasure, our life, our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, our passions, our pleasures towards something or someone. The question is never, is never, is that person a worshiper? The question is instead who or what or how or when or why are they worshiping? But we were created to worship. We can't help but worship. We all worship all the time. And the Bible says that the difference between people is not whether or not they worship, but in fact, the object of their worship. And Paul breaks it down this way in Romans 1.25. He says that uh, basically we either worship the creator and enjoy and steward creation, or we worship creation and in so doing, we commit idolatry against God. He says it this way, they exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator God who is forever praised. Amen. And let me say this as a leader, it is very easy to be an idolater. And oftentimes the man-made idols that we create are ministries, churches, and businesses. And we get praise for our idolatry because we do it in the name of the Lord. But the truth is, it really has nothing to do with the Lord. And so... I want you to really ask yourself, what does your worship look like? Paul says it this way in Romans 12, that we are to offer our bodies as, what? Living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. So for the single person who goes to bed with a boyfriend or girlfriend, the bed is a pagan altar. They are offering their body as a living sacrifice. It is in fact idolatry. It's deeper than a sex issue. For some of us, the altar is our desk. We sit at it. We sacrifice our health. We sacrifice our marriage. We sacrifice our children to the pagan God of success, fear of man, people-pleasing, and achievement. See, the opposite of worship is idolatry. It's the worship of someone or something other than God. It is pouring our life toward created things rather than the creator of all things. That's why even the Ten Commandments begin this way. Martin Luther has this tremendous insight As you read the Ten Commandments, you could read it as a list of do's and don'ts. And in fact, it is not exactly accurate to do so. In fact, the first two commandments are there's one God, worship that God alone. It's a worship issue. And if you don't, 
you will commit adultery. You will murder someone. You will steal from someone. You will lie to someone. Why? Because that's what idolaters do. So the answer is not, how can I stop lying? How can I stop cheating? How can I stop being a certain kind of person? The question is, why am I worshiping the wrong God? And how might I, by the grace of God, worship the real God? Because if I worship God, the way I handle sex and money and power and the truth will be different. None of us has a sin problem alone. Under every sin problem is an idol problem. And rather than just changing our behavior, we need to realign our worship. Because you can't worship God and sacrifice your marriage for the sake of ministry. You can't worship God and sacrifice your children for the sake of ministry. That's theology. Let's move on to history. When I was a little boy, I grew up Roman Catholic. Any of you do that? Welcome to Mass. My name is Father Mark, right? Any of you grow up Catholic? Okay, I grew up Catholic. I didn't have a bad experience. I just got bored with it and stopped going in my teen years. And when I was a Catholic boy, I was told in Catholic school, and I functioned as an altar boy for a season, I was told there are saints that we have venerated. They're kind of like superheroes. They're not gods, but they're not mere mortals. They're somewhere in between. They live at a level that the average person cannot achieve. And we, we venerate them, we elevate them, we exalt them. And when I became a Christian, through the grace of God and the reading of the word of God, I came to the conclusion we should not venerate saints. And having been a Protestant for some time now, it's curious to note that we have our own saints that we venerated as well. It's not just the Catholics who venerate their saints. Protestants do it as well. And what we tend to do is we tend to take people, usually leaders, ministry leaders, oftentimes even missionaries pioneering new works, and we tell a story about them that is not altogether true. We talk about all of their successes, we ignore their failures, we talk about all of their wins, we ignore their losses, we look at all of their fruit, and we neglect to examine their family. And this comes out of a a season of study where my wife, Grace, and I have been working on a book called Real Marriage. It'll be coming out. And tangentially, we started reading the biographies of Christian leaders. I started reading the men. Grace started reading the women and looking at their marriages. And there were some good ones, to be sure. I think Charles Haddon Spurgeon and his wife had a good marriage. Uh, The Luthers started off really bad. Uh, She was a renegade nun. He was a renegade monk. Um, She was also a beer brewer and he had a foul mouth. So it got off to an interesting start, but in the grace of God, it finished well. But what I found was a lot of the people who are elevated as venerated saints, they sacrificed their family for the idolatry of ministry. And the people who write their biographies and the people who run their associations and the people who defend their denominations, they resist the whole truth coming out. And I'm going to share some history with you. And my goal is not just to impugn the character of dead people who can't blog against me. But if you're going to impugn people, dead people are the easiest to pick on. I will (laughs) publicly confess that. I'll give you a few examples of ministry marriages where the ministry was idolatry. It was the worship of a created thing 
And the sacrifice that was made, which is the worship act, was in fact the family. I'll give you one. Uh, We'll begin with C.T. Studd. That's a great last name, right? That, in high school, that would have been awesome. Uh, Stud, yep, that would have been fantastic. C.T. Stud. He was a missionary to Africa. His wife uh, had also been a missionary to China. So she's devoted to Jesus and the cause. Her health was poor. And so she could not always uh, travel with him. And so he left her. He left her. He worked upwards of 18 hours a day, driver, driver, driver. It got to the point where his own daughter approached him and his son-in-law who worked for him and said, basically, I'm paraphrasing, we love you. This is unreasonable. This is unsustainable. You are killing your whole team. He said, you're fired. He fired his daughter. William Carey, have you heard of him? How many have heard of William Carey? The great William Carey. Missionary to India. His wife refused to go. She didn't want to go. The biographers tend to be very harsh with her. What a horrible woman. I don't know a lot of British women in that time that really wanted to go to India. I don't think she's necessarily unusual. And some new biographers have cast a new light on her. She didn't want to go, but he said, no, we're going to India. I'm going to India with or without you. So she went with him. Now in that day, you've got to understand, it's a five month boat ride and you are seasick throwing up the whole time. But she did it. Most of these men didn't know how to raise money. They did not hold a biblical theology of wealth. They held what I would constitute was more of a poverty theology. And as a result, their family suffered. So they were destitute poor, very broke, couldn't afford decent food or medical care or shelter. At various points, they were on the brink of starvation with their children. One of their sons, a five-year-old named Peter, he actually died. William Carey's wife went insane. She went insane. He drove her to the breaking point. See, some men should just stay single. But those who do marry have an obligation to their family. David Livingston, you've heard of him? We make movies about these guys. and I always start using bowling words when the credits roll because they don't tell the rest of the story. He was a missionary to Africa, took his wife and children with him. Uh, He had a little girl. His daughter died of dehydration. This is a man who didn't understand money, provision, didn't know how to raise money. Do you know how long it takes for a baby girl to die of dehydration? Do you know what it looks like to watch that? He did. It did not slow him down. At various points, because of the heat and the malnutrition and the poverty and the travel, he nearly lost other children as well. His wife at one point suffered temporary paralysis. That did not slow him down. 
He reached a point where he realized, my family can't keep up with me. So what he decided was, I'll get rid of my family. He shipped his children away to a boarding house in Scotland. Not a nice estate. You're talking dire poverty. This is like sending your family to the local mission. And they bounce from boarding house for the poor to boarding house for the poor. He was married, David Livingston was, for 17 years. He only resided, lived with his wife for four of those years. He, on one occasion, did return to Britain to have a bit of furlough, but he was so popular from his book writing and his sermons that everybody wanted him to go on tour and to travel and to do media interviews and speak, and so he did. And he didn't get much time at all with his family. He had a little girl named Anna. That was his youngest child. And so far as I can tell, and I'm still researching this, I think she only saw her father once in her lifetime. He came to meet with her and she reports three things. This strange man kept trying to kiss me and he had a mustache that I did not like. Number two, the whole time we were together, he ignored me and wouldn't stop writing, presumably a letter or book. And I asked for a certain color doll and he gave me the wrong color. Those are her only three memories of her father. Additionally, his wife contracted malaria She became delirious. She was with him and away from the children and spent her final hours or days in and out of consciousness, weeping, begging to see her children. She ultimately died as an alcoholic, self-medicating as an alcoholic. He, in his biography, says that he's not sure his wife died as a Christian. Uh, Their 18-year-old son died in prison. And looking back, Livingston says in one of his memoirs, it probably had something to do with the fact that I never fathered the boy. The great John Wesley. Not Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley, by all accounts, and they were brothers, had a good marriage, loved his wife and kids. Uh, He and John had a, a conflict John said, we're Methodists. We live on the road. We're itinerants. Charles said, I have a wife and kids. I'm going home. And he stayed home. And I would say this, Charles Wesley still got a lot done. He wrote 6,000 hymns. We still sing many of them today. And by all accounts, he was a godly husband and father. So don't confuse John and Charles Wesley. Now, the Wesley brothers founded what is known as Methodism. From that, we get the Methodist denomination. From that comes the Nazarenes, the Assemblies of God, the Christian Foursquare, comes the Holiness Movement, the Charismatic Movement, the Pentecostal Movement. If you look at where it all started, basically with the Wesleys. Now, John first loved a young woman named Grace. And John wanted to marry her But Charles ran off and quickly officiated a wedding between her and another man, which led to a real conflict in their relationship going forward. But this gives you insight into John Wesley's idolatry of ministry. 
He told Grace, if we have children, this was when they were engaged, they will need to live at the orphanage because I don't have time in my ministry for family. He eventually did marry. He was crossing the London Bridge in the winter, apparently twisted his ankle on some ice, and a woman took him in and tended to him. She was a 48-year-old widowed woman with children. He was a 41-year-old single man. What ensued is described by the biographers as, quote, 30 years war. He was committed to an itinerant, traveling, preaching lifestyle. He preached 40,000 sermons and traveled 250,000 miles, most of them on horseback. He said that a Methodist itinerant preacher should be in one place no longer than six to eight weeks. Now imagine being a woman who's 48 with children married to that guy. She tried to travel with him early in their marriage and think of the conditions You're talking horseback and you're talking boat voyages that are brutal. And she did not fare well. Again, she's a 48-year-old woman and a widow nonetheless with young children. There is no evidence that I can find that John Wesley made any attempt to love or parent her children. A couple stories illustrate the kind of husband that John Wesley was. And let me say this, John Wesley had an amazing theology of marriage. His sermons on marriage are riveting. They are exemplary. They are astounding and convicting. It just goes to show you can have a theology of something and not a reality of something. You can have a theology of love and not a reality of love. You can have a theology of grace and not a reality of grace. You can have a theology of family and not a reality of family. The tribe that I've tended to run with tends to be more reformed. That's one of our great failures. We think because we've finished the theological precise declaration of one thing that it actually exists. Not yet. There's still work to be done by the grace of God. There was an occasion where John Wesley heard that his wife was near death on her deathbed. So he traveled to her home. He arrived at one o'clock in the morning. Her fever lifted and so he left to get back to work. They lived in separate houses She never once in her lifetime set foot in his home. I'll give you a few quotes. He said, quote, I cannot understand how a Methodist preacher can answer to God to preach one less sermon or travel one day less in a married than a single state. John Wesley, now that you're married, what will change? Nothing. Peter says to be considerate of your wife. That's not considerate. Their marriage was so brutal that 
there are reports of domestic violence. One visiting preacher said that she assaulted him and pulled his hair out. He denied it for obvious reasons. No man wants to get beat up by a girl. In a letter that I found that he wrote to his wife, he admitted that he physically beat her. Am I saying that John Wesley was a wife batterer? At least once. And he essentially said, I'm paraphrasing his quote, yes, I shook you, but at least I didn't give you a fatal blow and kill you. That's what he wrote to his wife. At the end of their life, they just stopped trying. Here's the big idea when it comes to marriage. It gets better or it gets bitter. For the Wesleys, it got bitter. Nearing the end of his life, he wrote to her, quote, and this is the final correspondence that we are aware of between John Wesley and his wife. As it is doubtful, considering your age and mine, whether we may meet any more in this world, I think it right to tell you my mind once and for all, without anger or bitterness, if you were to live a thousand years, you could not undo the mischief you have done until you have done all you can towards it. I bid you farewell. She eventually died before he, they had her funeral and buried her. And a few days later, he found out his wife was dead. I went on an investigative journey in uh, London some months ago to examine these things. I wanted to see where she was buried and where he was buried. They're not even buried together. They will not be together at the resurrection of the dead. I asked, where is she buried? And I was taken to a road. They said, somewhere under that road. She was not given a real dignified burial. And to this day, she is not honored. And right now, cars are driving over her dead body. A.W. Tozer, one of the great leaders in the Christian Missionary Alliance, a man who has written some exemplary books that are at least as popular today as they were when he was alive on the earth. He was a gifted man of God. All of these are gifted men of God. But he had a poverty theology. He didn't like to take a salary. He didn't like to take an honorarium. didn't like to generate any revenue. And it sounds, oh, so holy. You don't need anything. Well, your wife does. And so his wife is home literally early in their ministry praying, hey, Jesus, have somebody in the church drop something off from their garden so I can feed the kids dinner. Some of you love A.W. Tozer. Rethink it. He spent hours every day in prayer to the Lord. Right, because he wasn't playing with his kids. See, you got to pay it out of somebody's account. He didn't pay it out of the church account. He didn't pay it out of the Jesus account. He paid it out of the accounts of the wife and children. He would spend hours every day by himself praying and talking to God. People say, that's amazing. That is amazing amazingly tragic. Am I opposed to talking to God? No. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to be alone with the Father. But if you ignore your wife and children and you say it's for Jesus, you're preaching a false gospel with your life and it doesn't matter what your words proclaim, your deeds betray you. A.W. Tozer was so disconnected from his wife that there are reports that he would be traveling. She never quite knew where he was, preaching and speaking. 
And uh, at least on one occasion, he sent her a letter. I've taken a job in another town. She was wondering, where had you been for a few weeks? He took a job in another town and was working the job for a while before he notified her and said, okay, pack up the kids, come and see me. Well, the problem was he thought it was worldly to have a car. What would people think? As opposed to what does my wife need? So he wouldn't buy her a car. So she kept having to move the children without a vehicle so much so that even when they took a job in Chicago and he was pretty famous and had a large church, he never took the full salary, never took the honorariums, never took the book royalties, refused to buy her a car. He would go to church by himself on Sunday morning. She would walk to church as an older woman in the Chicago winters in the snow to hear her husband preach about the grace of God. It got so bad, she started hitchhiking to church in the winter. There was one occasion where the youth pastor and his wife pulled over and picked her up. And the youth pastor's wife told the youth pastor, do not become like A.W. Tozer. Now, he continually broke her heart. He did not pursue her emotionally that I can find. He took her sons and sent them off to war, which devastated her. And as he was lying near death, she went to speak with him. There's no money. There's no plan. There's no legacy. There's no consideration. What should I do? You're leaving me a penniless widow. Think of that. Every time you pick up A.W. Tozer's book, none of this went to feed his family. None of this took care of his wife. He told her, I have no plan for you and I have nothing to leave you. But there is a gentleman in the church whose wife has died. He is rich. Maybe he will marry you. Husbands, what your wives? Love your wives. She did marry that man. She immediately changed her last name because she did not want to be associated with A.W. Tozer. And she writes, at least the final years of my life were joyful, I'm paraphrasing, because my husband loved me. He was generous to me. He even bought me a car and taught me how to drive. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. Also poverty theology See, today there's prosperity theology and poverty theology. There's not a lot of biblical thinking about stewardship and wealth. Hudson Taylor also held a poverty theology. He decided, you know, if I'm going to go to China and reach those people, I can't have my kids in the way. So he sent his children away. And they were never together again as a family on the earth. His wife went with him and became pregnant got cholera, became very sick. The child was born. She could not nurse the child and her son died. He couldn't afford medical care. She died, as far as I can tell, at the age of 33. He then in his journal quotes Job, like he's Job. He's not Job. If you punch yourself in the face, you're not Job. That's a self-inflicted wound. 
Sometimes you suffer because you're Job. Sometimes you suffer because you're wrong. His daughter, Grace, who he, by all accounts, loved, died. His little girl. And as he lay at her, or rather knelt as she lay on her bed, he wrote this. Listen, this is what he writes at the deathbed of his little girl. Do you have a little girl? Can you see her face? I've got two girls, three boys. Can you see the face of your daughter as she's dying? What do you write down? He writes, quote, I laid my dear wife and the darling children and myself on the altar of this service. What is that? Idolatry. What he said is, I knew when we started, I'd sacrifice my wife, I'd sacrifice my children, I'd sacrifice myself to the glory of God. No. To the worship of an idol called missions and ministry and success. There was an occasion where a father nearly killed his son on an altar in the Bible and God came and said what? No. I'll send my son. You don't need to sacrifice your son. The message of the gospel is we do not make a sacrifice. The sacrifice has been made once for all. Our priorities, friends, are Christian, spouse, parent, worker. Idolatry happens when we have any of those priorities practically out of place. Biography. How about you? What if someday they write a biography about your life right now? See, the difference between many of us and these men, they live under a microscope. We comb through all of the details in their life. You and I, well, some more than me, get away with a lot. Nobody knows what you're doing. If I could give you one thing to focus on in the next year, it would be this. Focus on friendship with your spouse. As Gracie and I were working on the Real Marriage book, because I've got a pretty deep nerd root in me, I read all or part of 187 books on marriage most of them Christian. I couldn't find one book that had a chapter on friendship. Couldn't find one significant section of one book that had a chapter on friendship. Everybody on marriage went to all the verses in the Bible on marriage and they skipped all the verses on friendship as if those were two separate categories. The Bible doesn't treat friendship with your marriage spouse with, in that way. Like in Song of Solomon chapter five, verse 16, she says, he is my lover and he is my friend. I think that's a great definition of marriage. Lover and friend. And and early on in Genesis, God had created everything, said it was good, said it was very good, came to the man and said, it's not good that you should be alone. So I'm gonna make you a helper suitable. Literally means one who stands face to face. A friend. We talk a lot about community. Some of you have a lot of friends on Facebook. They're not all your friends. The word is not appropriated rightly. As I've examined historically the failures that leaders make, it oftentimes boils down to this. They're just not friends with their spouse. 
And it's that face-to-face. See, that's the Bible's language for friendship. It says that Moses saw God how? Face-to-face. First Corinthians, Paul says that one day when it's all said and done, we'll see Jesus how? Face-to-face. See, that's the Bible's language of friendship. And in ministry, you need to know this. Be friendly toward all, but friends with a few. Be friendly toward all, but friends with a few. Jesus only had a few close friends, Peter, James, and John. You could include Mary, Martha, Lazarus. He has a few friends. He's friendly toward all, but he's friends with a few. And the most important friendship of all, the friendship that God made first, the first friendship in the history of the world was a husband and a wife, Adam and Eve. And to, to, to demonstrate it, let me say this. Some marriages are like this. They're back to back. You've really become enemies. Some of the stories, tragic stories that I've shared with you, they're back to back marriages. They're enemies. Like they've turned their back on each other. Most leader ministry marriages are shoulder to shoulder. Meaning you work together, you serve together, you raise the kids, you grow the business, you, you know, improve the church, you remodel the house, you look after the aging parents, shoulder to shoulder. Marriage has to have a lot of shoulder to shoulder. But what God intends for it is face to face. Friendship, communication, love, affection, consideration, memory making. These tragic historical biographies are such that it seems evident to me They just didn't have a friendship. How is your friendship with your spouse? Are you back to back? Is it adversarial? Are you shoulder to shoulder? The kids are doing great. The business is going great. The church is going great. Are you friends? You know what happens to those relationships? As soon as the business goes away, crisis. As soon as the children move out, meltdown. Because the only thing holding them together is the idol. And once the idol is gone, so is the relationship. I'm convinced after 23 years with the same girl coming up on our 20th wedding anniversary next year, marriage is not only about friendship, but friendship changes everything in the marriage. It changes the holidays. It changes the simple times. It changes the sex life. It makes all the difference in the world. And what I see with leaders is this. The first thing that goes on the altar is friendship with the spouse. And we just sacrifice that to the pagan God of success, achievement, and fame. Your relationship with your spouse has to have a lot of shoulder to shoulder, but it will not be enduring and endearing unless it has a lot of face-to-face. Testimony. Here's how we learned that. Um, I don't know how much I want to share. To be honest, I don't want to share anything. Um, Grace, my wife and I, we met at 17. And uh, she was a pastor's preacher's daughter. And I was not a Christian. I was a moral Catholic boy. We started dating for a while and started sleeping together. This will never happen with my children, right? Like this. 
Some, some people look at our story and they say, oh, well, it worked out for good. Yeah, I also know this guy who was drunk driving through a school zone and didn't hit anybody. I'm not encouraging others to do the same. You know, like we got a, we got, we got a, we got a grace card from God on this. We were sleeping together, hanging out. I got saved in college reading the Bible she gave me. And I learned that uh, fornication was a sin. Totally new F word to me, uh, an F word I'd never been exposed to in my whole life. <laughs> so we stopped fornicating. And then uh, we got married in college between our junior and senior year. We we're both 21. And what I remember in the early days, maybe this sounds similar to your story, she was my friend. Like, I liked hanging out with her. Like, if we were on a road trip, it was just fun to have her. I couldn't wait to see her. I just liked being with her. And sometimes she'd say, well, we're not even doing anything. It doesn't matter. You're here. It's just that ministry of presence. And then we got married and then we graduated and then we tried to get jobs and we're trying to pay off school loans and we're trying to get pregnant. We're trying to plan a church. You know what it became? A lot of shoulder to shoulder. You would look at it and say, well, hey, they planted a church and they paid off their debt and they have kids and, you know, they're working on the house and, you know, they're building a life together. It was a lot of shoulder to shoulder, not a lot of face to face. And this went on for some years. Next thing you know, we got five kids and a church of, I think it was about 6,000 at the time. We just cracked the fastest growing and uh, we just cracked the, uh, the list of one of the largest churches and most innovative and wow. And, uh, and I remember one night, Gracie and I were just having a conversation, getting a little bit of face-to-face time. We, we didn't have enough, but we were getting a little at this moment. And... Uh, she just starts talking and I just start asking questions about a previous relationship before she had met me. And she just casually just starts answering my questions. She looks at me and she realizes I'm bawling. Like I am weeping bitterly. Um, to be honest with you, I probably hadn't cried in 10 or 20 years. She said, what's wrong? I said, do you not understand what you just told me. She said, no. I said, you're a rape victim. Like you were raped and beaten and assaulted repeatedly. And she said, well, no, it it wasn't. She'd helped a lot of victims, but she had disassociated and not wanted to put herself in that category. Because see, so oftentimes in Christianity, we talk about, if you commit sin, repent, and you'll be forgiven, which is true. But what, what, what happens if you're sinned against? What if you're not the sinner, you're the victim? She didn't know what to do with that very well. And I remember, it, it was one of those surreal moments, like this explains so much of my girl why emotionally it's felt like she's a bank vault that I don't have the combination for. Why we do the shoulder to shoulder so good, but there's just a limit to our intimacy and that friendship and that 
oneness that the Bible speaks of. And at that time, we had just decided to go multi-site. We had uh, just given birth to our fifth kid. We were right in that season. Um, at that point, I was on the road a lot, um, not making good money um, and having to supplement my income from the outside. I had one part-time assistant. Everybody direct report to me. Um, and I was exhausted. And I remember in that moment just thinking, I have to be a good friend right now. And I don't feel like I had been a very good friend up until that point. I feel like our marriage could have been one that if in the grace of God I achieved more than I have, they'd write a book about me being a horrible husband and a decent preacher, which is just another way of saying hypocrite. And I remember in that moment just thinking, my priority as of this moment is to be Grace's friend. I need to be her friend. And so I went um, to the church and I said, uh, everything needs to change. We need new bylaws. We need new constitution. We need a new org chart. We need some new staff. We need new technology. I need new help. Everything needs to change. And there was a violent reaction. No. What you find is in ministry, your idolatry is ministry and some people's idol is you. And what happens in idolatry, whatever you idolize, you inevitably demonize. That's what Jonathan Edwards says. Meaning if you idolize someone or something and they disappoint you, you demonize and attack them. That's why it's only fun to be someone's idol for a little while. And I realized I had an idol of ministry. And for some people, they had an idol of me. They had to have access. They had to have relationship. They had to have connection. And I couldn't tell them, my wife is shattered. I need to go home. Because it's not my job to tell the whole world my wife's business. We don't have an answer. I don't want to invite the world into my family. I want to go home and I want to take care of my girl. I'm dying. She's dying. I'm physically broken, had worn out my adrenal glands. I was on my last leg physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually. I said things I'll regret forever. I was angry. I was bitter. I was contentious. I was frustrated. I was lonely. I was hurting. And some leaders in the organization were kind and said, we love you, we love your family, we'll make the adjustments. Some did not. Man, guys, it made the paper. It ended up in protests. It ended up with death threats. We went from 6,000 to 5,000. Now, let me tell you this. If your attendance is tied to your righteousness, that's hard to swallow. 
That's why some of you are happy when attendance and giving is up and you're sad when it's down because your righteousness is not from Christ, but from the performance of your ministry. For me, I was like, oh my gosh, we're shrinking. We just made the fast growing list. People are leaving. Friends of ours are leaving. My wife's going to the grocery store getting cussed out. My kids are going to school and they have to account for organizational change. But my wife needed me to be her friend. And I'm not saying I'm the best friend in the world, but I'm saying that I want to be by the grace of God. So we changed everything. This was some years ago, four, five, six, I don't even remember. What I have in making all those changes is a lot of griefs, but I don't have any regrets. And in the grace of God, my girl and I have built and are building a friendship, a really great friendship. I like her. Like the Bible says, love your wife. But liking her, that's a big deal. I like her. There's a joy that's returned to her. In the grace of God, we've worked through things and the book was really healing for us. I thought, let's see they're gonna make or break us. And she's really brave and she tells her story. So pray for the critics who will use it to throw rocks at her. But I'll give you a closing um, kind of example. I know I'm over time, but I never care. Um, (laughs) So this week was one of those weeks. I was back to work, you know, summer's over. So... (laughs) Unbeknownst to me, my executive pastor, who I had the honor of leading to Christ, has been with me 13, 14 years. He's leaving staff immediately over nothing bad. He's a godly man. Relationship is intact. Everything's awesome. I believe, he believes, we believe that God's called him to this really cool opportunity, which we celebrate, but that left a gaping hole. I'm not an accountant, right? uh, I'm not an attorney. I don't have certain skill set. At the same time that my kids started school, my oldest daughter is starting high school. My youngest son is going to kindergarten. All our kids are in school. So I came home from the day at the office, like I'm losing my dear friend and executive pastor who's going to stay as an elder, but this is massive work and this feels like another loss. And, you know, I love him, but this is hard. And I come home and My wife and I look at each other like the kids start school tomorrow. The house is going to be empty. Our youngest is starting school. This is a whole new season. We're sort of freaking out a little bit. I go to climb into bed with my five-year-old son, Gideon, and read him his Jesus storybook Bible. And I'm like, all right, buddy, you know, let me pray for you. You got kindergarten tomorrow. You know what's coming? We'd explain it all to him. And I got to the point where I said, okay, we're going to take you into your classroom. You're going to sit in your seat. You got to listen to your teacher. I said, are you scared? He said, no, because you'll be with me, right? I said, I'm sorry, buddy, I, I can't go to kindergarten. He looked at me with a real scared look, tears in his eyes. He says, but daddy, what if I need you? 
I just started crying. I try not to cry in front of them. I walk out and I'm like, man, our whole world's just changed. Like our, all our kids are going to be gone for at least a couple hours a day. And I go into the other room. I look at Grace. I can just tell she's right on the verge of crying. I was like, man, I lost my executive pastor. We're sending our kids off to school. It's a whole new season. And she grabbed my hand and she said, it's a good thing we're friends. So we went outside and sat by the fire for a couple hours. And just face to face, I got to talk to my friend. You know what my friend did? She prayed for me. She gave me wise counsel. She rubbed my neck. (laughs) I mean... Look at what a massive endeavor that is. And the next day we took the kids to school and dropped them all off. And I put, we put Gideon in his little chair. And thank you, Pastor Perry. I was supposed to be here and Perry let me fly out late so I could take my kids to their first day of school. So thank you, Pastor Perry. Um, thank you. Thank you on behalf of the Driscoll kids. Um, so we dropped the kids off. We went out to the car. She was bawling her eyes out. My wife was. I had something in my eye. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, this is a whole new season for us. And she was crying and she said, it's a good thing we're friends. So we went out to breakfast. I want you to be friends with your spouse. The people you're worried about now, they're probably going to leave anyways. (laughs) Praise God if they do. (laughs) If you're here with your spouse, hold their hand and I'll pray for you. Father God, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. God, the Bible includes the honest accounts of actual lives of your servants. We thank you that David didn't just take down Goliath. He also murdered a man and committed adultery. We don't thank you for that, but we thank you that you tell us the truth that Noah wasn't just a godly man who built an ark. He got drunk and passed out naked in his tent. God, Peter wasn't just a brave man. He was also a coward. Thomas wasn't just a disciple. He was a doubter. God, we're all failed. We're all flawed. We're all faulted. Please keep us from venerating mere mortals Let us know that as the Bible is honest, history needs to be honest and we need to be honest. And God, I pray for each of these leaders and their families that if and when a biography is written, it would end well, no matter what the middle and the beginning look like. God, please keep us from the idolatry of ministry. Please keep us from sacrificing our health and our marriage and our children to the gods of attendance and applause and achievement and success. And God, that doesn't mean we want a small ministry. It means we want a really big ministry, but a ministry that worships you and not idols. In Jesus' name, amen.